Welcome to the Ecom Wiz Podcast, a podcast that helps Amazon sellers to dominate the marketplace. And I do mean dominate. Dominate. Each week, we deliver the best interviews with some of the top Amazon influencers in the industry. This is the Ecom Wiz Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Rob Stanley with the Ecom Wiz Podcast. And today, my special guest is Karina Molostova. Hey, Karina, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Now, Karina has done a lot of amazing things. We're going to talk about those today on our show. But one of the things that she kind of brought up to me and I thought was a great subject talked about was some of the changes going on right now that are, you know, kind of influencing the seller's product research. And we're going to jump right into it. And I'd like to ask you kind of a question regarding that. And what current changes have you seen on Amazon and how are they affecting some of the Amazon sellers? Well, not getting in too many details with everything in the world going on today. I think a lot of, especially new time sellers or even people who have been in the process of researching have this fear of having a limit with categories or, you know, all the recent IPI changes, which is Amazon limiting you to actually send in units to your account. And there's been so much that is changing with product research and even actually creating a listing and sending an inventory. And I just wanted to address it to kind of go from a mindset of when I started at Amazon was completely different. And throughout the whole path, you see it changing gradually. And when you're not in it for a long time, sometimes those changes look very dramatic, almost like it's the end of Amazon. However, I just want to kind of clarify that that's not the truth. Amazon always has a new changes and we just have to kind of switch up how we do things. So um, a couple months ago, as I'm sure you remember very well, we were only limited to those five categories not to send in products. So people said that long-term we'll just research in those five categories, beauty, industrial, pets, health and household, and baby. Um, now, of course, they're more open. So you can send them from whatever category you want. It's just you have to get over that hump. Recently, and more news came out that now you have to have an IPI, which is inventory performance index over 500 to send in large amounts of units, which of course new sellers don't have. And even if you're a new account, they limit you on what you can send in. So that also raises a lot of panic. But if you think of kind of doing this business model, the low risk way, which is what I love to teach my students personally, you will be completely fine with only sending in 200 units as a new seller. And then as those start to sell, you don't have to kind of um, do crazy launch strategies, all with PPC, all organic. They start to rank to the top and that will of course increase your IPI if you've done your product research successfully. So then over time that adds on to your account history, your seasoning, your account, and you'll have more flexibility because most sellers are taught to kind of this high risk approach is what I've seen a lot. And it's a really difficult way to enter Amazon because you expect to have tens and thousands of dollars saved, which is kind of unrealistic. I mean, it is realistic, but you know, people want to do risk management, right? They don't want to invest tens and thousands of dollars when they're kind of getting into it. So you don't necessarily need to order a thousand units to do really well in Amazon. You can start off with a small MOQ of 200 and then get traction with your account and send in more. So I think that's kind of the biggest number one change right now with Amazon, with everything happening. And it's kind of lingering for a few weeks now. So I'm not sure the trajectory of it in the future. 
Yeah. And one of the things I'm reading, and if you could maybe address or give your opinion on this, is so we're, we're kind of saying coming up, uh, I'm hearing a lot of people speculate, this could be the biggest ever online e-commerce season because there's still so many things not open, like a lot of the malls aren't open and things like that. So a lot of people are going to be shopping online. And of course, they're going to go to Amazon. The question I have for you is, do you feel that if Amazon gets just hit hard with all these orders and everything, what kind of issues could it, you know, what could arise here? Do you think they could, you know, go back down to only uh, certain categories again or limit people from shipping in more inventory? Kind of what's your feel on that, right? I personally, right, we never know how it's going to turn out. I think Amazon is probably accounting for that. They have way more data than we can ever imagine. They're seeing the sales trends. They're kind of anticipating. And I think they're preparing for that with all of these changes they're making in advance. Because, um, you know, even last year for Q4 season, which is the busiest season of all, um, anyone can send in whatever. And it was not, never a concern. People would be testing products. They would be sending thousands of inventory, right? Those who found a winning product and can afford it. But now they're not really taking on that risk. They don't want random people sending in and treating them as a warehouse, essentially. They really are prioritizing things that know they're, they're going to sell. That's why the whole inventory performance index, I think, is so critical to them at this point. Because sellers who are moving volumes and have a trend of selling well, they will let them send in more things. Because, of course, for them, that means more money. But they're also not fully limiting people. So I do think they're probably prepared for it, but I can't imagine them limiting new time sellers or even sellers with a lower kind of performance index in any lower, just because it's already very limited right now. So that's just my personal opinion. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's all based on hoping that this COVID doesn't spike again <laughs> and we mm -hmm. go back into lockdown. Right. So, yeah. uh, so I had another question for you kind of regarding that same thing, but this time like with shipping. So, I, my UPS guy, I actually known my UPS guy for years when I ran my own business, but now he uh, delivers to my house too. And mm -hmm. I was talking to him just the other day and, you know, we've got a lot going on with the USPS postal system and UPS is getting flooded. We are, I mean, as a buyer on Amazon, I'm starting to see my packages like delayed or a day or two longer than they should be. Mm -hmm. um, could that maybe affect some of the, you know, sales or things that happen with the Christmas time frame or season, so to speak, coming up? Definitely. Um, I've noticed that. So I'm, some of my categories are actually in those essential ones. So I thankfully haven't been limited but on the newer accounts, it's definitely a different story because you are more limited. But there are packages, even when you click on them and you're doing product research, or even when you personally want to buy something, I do see the delivery delayed, even if it's prime eligible, Amazon just can't deliver that. So I really think that people, if they're going to buy something, they're going to buy it. If it's another reason why it's not really a concern for the seller as a business is because if they're in that one category, everyone is in the same boat. Say you're selling pet products or something. Every single person in that category will have the same limitations. It's not like they're getting just targeting one seller and saying, you guys, just you are delayed. So overall, the customer, either they still buy from you or they buy from someone else, they're both going to be delayed anyways. Um, a good alternative to this as well is having a merchant fulfilled kind of option as well. I think that's good on the side. Um, you can ship it in yourself. That's a, from your house too. 
perhaps maybe you can do it faster than everybody else, depending on your area. But I mean, why not? If it, if it adds to your sales kind of ranking, that's, uh, I think, a good alternative to have as well. Yeah. It, so I, I'm on a lot of the Facebook groups and stuff and I'm seeing, and, and you covered this a little bit, but I'd like to go in a little more to it about the limited inventory policy that they have. So a uh, bunch of people were kind of, you know, they're new sellers and I, I keep seeing them say, Hey, you know, it, Amazon keeps saying I've got about 30 days inventory, but sales are picking up. It could be only like a week longer. And how do I either send more inventory in or get by that limit, uh, you know, kind of what have you seen, uh, address that a little more, the limited inventory policy going on. So if you are approaching as a seller, not you, but anyone watching yeah. this, they're approaching the, those long-term storage fees. The best thing to do is to liquidate because I don't think you're ever going to get over that hump. It's going to really ruin your profit margin. So what you can do is actually send most of the units back to your house and hold them there and leave, I don't know, however many you think is going to sell in a week, keep selling those, right? Yeah. Um, they do charge, I think two weeks ago, it was free to re do removal orders. Now it's yeah. back to 10 cents, which is still a fraction of the cost compared to if you were keeping your units in the Amazon warehouse. So you're not really going to lose that much. And they have partner uh, carrier rates for if you do want to send it back to Amazon, but don't go over the six month storage fees. And if you, if it's picking up, that's great. Um, if say you're ordering from China, a lot of the times they won't even let you create the label. It literally, if you have, let's say 150 units in the Amazon, you can only send 50 more. They won't let you go over that 200. So again, best way to do it, send it to your house, keep it in your house. And when it's getting closer to selling out or picking up, then you use those uh, partner rates send them into Amazon, it should be there within one or two days. So that helps two things. You're not stuck with long-term storage fees. And if you have a longer lead time in China or longer shipping time, then it's actually, right, you don't want to wait till you fully sell out to get the next order because you'll be out of stock. So if it's sitting in your house, then that's completely fine. It's going to, whenever you're getting closer, just send it in. It will be there in a few days. Yeah. And, and it's free to have it in your house. So. <laughs> So you, great. yeah, so uh, earlier you did mention that one of the things that you help a lot of new sellers with is uh, kind of finding or selling or going after low risk products. Mm -hmm. Can you define that a little more for me? Yes. So low risk, um, my favorite way to think of it is comparing the two models. I talk about it in my YouTube channel and my course and my everything I do, right? Because I think it's a really crucial foundation. So it goes back to kind of product research fundamentals and your goals. So the number one goal I think people have is obviously to make money, but it's how much do you want to make? And they get stargazed by all these numbers, right? They see a product doing even $50,000 a month, even $35,000 a month. And in some cases, I mean, I get messages all the time still of people not in my programs that say, I want to go after this product. The sales are $100,000 a month. But then you have to think of, how are you going to match those sales? You have to actually have your product on the first page. You have to have enough inventory, which means you have to put up the money to get that inventory. You have to rank it somehow, some way. And the only way to get to the first page is to match the sales velocity. And how are you going to do that without having a heavy push of maybe full price giveaways or really high PPC costs? Sometimes the, even that's not possible because it's such a competitive market. So people need to kind of 
phase away from going out to these kind of one hit products that are doing these crazy numbers and focus on something that maybe is doing $5,000 a month, 10,000, even 15, anywhere in that range. Um, and go in on those because those are the ones that you can actually rank without stressing yourself out. You can rank it with PPC. Those are the ones where getting a small MOQ is enough, right? You don't need to order a thousand and then worry about going out of stock. Um, that also goes with looking for smaller search volumes. Um, not obviously you have to, the sales and the revenue has to match, but my lowest kind of threshold is $5,000 a month of sales across the market. If it varies 5,000, 10,000, that's fine. But I don't like markets that are doing crazy, crazy high numbers because um, yeah, it's just a very heavy investment and the risk is really, really high. And oftentimes people get stuck with these um, kind of large copious amounts of units that they're, they're hoping is gonna sell. So they try Facebook ads, all this stuff, increasing PPC, and then it burns a hole in their wallet. While they can actually launch several products, say one fails, then they're not as hit hard, even mentally wise. They're not hit with this, oh, okay, it failed. I can't because I already spent so much money on this product. So I can't imagine doing that again twice or three times. But sometimes it's necessary. So if you minimize the risk, um, and there's different strategies, and of course, this is broadly, but I teach all of this in my private label club and in all my courses exactly how to identify those types of markets. But I think low risk means also not just products, but kind of having a peace of mind and heart when you're doing it. So you're looking at it as a fun kind of whatever you're trying, whatever your goals are with it. It's not as um, detrimental if you don't succeed the first time. Yeah. So g give us a little outline of when, when you're teaching about product research, uh, I, I, I don't know if you mentioned our unit, maybe, maybe you and I were talking about before, but like your product research criteria when you're like helping a student or kind of help, helping them look for what they, their product's going to be, or maybe a couple products, what are you kind of looking for? Or what are you teaching for them, them to look for in like the product research side? So there's a lot. I like to kind of take it into two phases um, and both are quite detailed. So the first one is just getting the overview of the market. And then once that hits a certain amount of checkpoints, then you take it in deeper and actually study the competition and all of that. But let's just focus on phase one because that's kind sure. of the primary thing. Um, as far as doing the product research, there's a lot of different methods that we can't possibly cover in a podcast, um, but it doesn't have to get complicated. You don't have to be looking at crazy like Pinterest sites or anything, although I know those are good methods as well. But if you keep it simple and stick to Amazon, and just kind of using the softwares to check the data, that should be good enough. I mean, there's no reason to go um, crazy and stress yourself out. Um, but essentially you're looking for market stability. And if, like I mentioned earlier about the revenue, for me, the bare minimum is $5,000 because I do wanna take home a profit, right? I don't wanna just do it to make $20 a month. So 5,000 revenue, 5, um, revenue, you'll have good profits. Um, then reviews as well. The myth about having your product be 75 reviews and under is very limiting. There are good products that you can compete with that have 500 reviews, 300. It doesn't matter as long as they're not in the thousands. But if you see some sellers that have reviews under 100 and they're relatively new, then you can be that seller as well. So not everybody across the board has to have small reviews, but you wanna see a little gap that some people are there 
brand new or, you know, three months new, four months, six months um, that have smaller reviews. Um, and then another thing I think people don't really look at is the uh, listing, how to say it, the duration of the listing whenever they launched. So if everybody is an old time seller, it's going to be very hard for you to outrank that Amazon history and kind of get it into the first page. But again, going back to that point of if there's a few sellers that are recently on the platform and recently launched three months ago, six months ago, you know that if they did it, you can do it too. So I think that's a really strong um, indicator. And then search volume is very, very important too. You don't want it to be abnormally high. Um, something I offer to my students is a product research validator. So they actually send me these criteria that I ask. It's a private form. And I, one of the questions I ask is search volume. And sometimes they send it in and it would be something like 140,000. And automatically I know that's just too competitive. That's not what you want. While you want there to be demand, you don't want it to be that high because that means there's also competition. You'd be surprised, or maybe not, but even some products that have 5,000 um, a month searches still do really, really well and can hit over $5,000 worth of revenue because the conversion rates are so much higher because it's such a niche audience and only people looking for those things are really wanting to buy it as opposed to looking for something so general that everyone is searching for but not really committed to buying. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great information and very true. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, what about uh, how important is using like PPC and you know keywords when you're launching a product? Uh, I think it's like a hundred percent of the game. <laughs> you can't, <laughs> yeah, you can't really launch without having an optimized listing and knowing your keywords. Um, it's you said you have a background in uh, IT and so you you know really well about optimization and you said YouTube and AdSense or AdWords, yep. right? So yep. that applies the same to Amazon. If you're not optimized on the back end, which is the techie keywords, and the front end, which is how pleasing is your listing to actually look at and read through you're not going to rank very well. Amazon wants yeah. to rank for certain words, um, but then the customer also has to purchase it. So you have to be aesthetically pleasing on the photos, which actually um, I love uh, kind of talking about how to really create a listing, especially the photographs part and graphic designs, things like that, because that really helps conversions. I've done so much split testing with main images and sometimes you look at markets and you wonder, okay, if this person is selling with these photographs and they have no lifestyle images, no infographics, no compare and contrast, then that's such a strong point as well. The front end mm -hmm. optimization, you can go and completely dominate just based on aesthetics. And it's really, really important. I know we're kind of sidetracking. It's just that no, it's all right. about keywords optimization, but the whole visuals of it is very, very important. But in terms of keywords, of course, on the back end, it has to be perfect. And when you do your PPC, that also, you have to know how to optimize it and how to extract those uh, customer search terms to put back into your campaigns. And of course you could help your listing and uh, you know, pretty much get on page ones for so many different keywords. That's critical in actually getting the sales. Yeah, actually the next question I was gonna ask you is about photos and, and images. So <laughs> no, that's perfect. But let's actually dive a little more into the photos and images. I know for a fact that uh, you know my friends are uh, John and Justin from PicFu. I'm sure you use PicFu because I've seen your video talking about it. So uh, I mean, do you every single product do you run it through PicFu when you're running your images and kind of doing uh, like testing of which images are better? 
there's actually like two ways to split test things. I talk, I talk about this to my students and I give them um, actual tutorials like uh, on video on how to distinguish. So the first thing, Pigfoo is really helpful if you are kind of pre-launching or thinking about designing a new package um, because you can get just you in your mind think one thing is good, but maybe the color red is better than blue. You're still kind of swimming. You don't really know what's fully going to convert. So that's great for that to really get a feel of what direction to go. Um, however, when it comes to actual sales, I really like uh, kind of data driven results. So I would use other softwares to test out actual sales. So I have one main image, whether it's um, like a package maybe of the product or maybe a, a model holding or using the product, something like that, right? You test those out because you actually see the results from real Amazon customers that are actually purchasing your product. And that when you actually have a live product goes such a long way because sometimes I would split test and I would see even a 20% increase in sales just by changing the main image. And I've actually heard other people, their main image got removed and you know how Amazon replaces it with the second image by default. Some of their listings, they when they didn't notice, that actually fell off of page one completely because it's so important for that even first image. When you're trying to split test, again, the first image is the priority because that's what people see. So it has to be rendered. It has to be um, high colored, high resolution. There's just so many aspects to it. And you can't go lazy on this. Um, people do. They try to use their iPhone for pictures. It doesn't work out too well. I always say go with a professional when you do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and anybody who's listening, I actually just had Justin on a couple episodes ago. Uh, take a look at Justin and PickFu. had him on the podcast or the video. If you're watching our video, uh, be sure to go take a look at that. Cause he actually did went into detail, showed actual examples. We showed some really funny examples actually too, of, of uh, that I did with him when I was down in LA for a conference. So there's some great stuff on that. So be sure to go check that out. But if you're uh, using, so, sorry, back to the, um, you mentioned Justin. So when you're composing, for example, package design for your product, it was a great um, way to test it because again, you can see which one will outperform the other. So you don't send in your package design to you know your manufacturer and they create it and only then you find out that people actually prefer a different one. So that's a good way to kind of get a direction of where you're going in the beginning. Yeah. So in what point of the process when you kind of got into selling on Amazon, did you decide that, hey, I'm kind of overwhelmed, I need to expand my team? And what steps did you take to expand your team? Um, as far as being overwhelmed, I feel like you feel that for the first day you start Amazon and it never really truly goes away. You just learn how to kind of embrace it and realize it's part of the process and learn to find the fun in it. I've gone through a lot of um, team members, virtual assistants, um, collaborations, all of the above under the sun. And um, you really have to not cut corners with this. And sometimes you have to realize that you are better at doing some things than other people. So um, yeah, I've hired people. Sometimes they weren't kind of doing what they were supposed to. People get lazy. So you have to know how to cut them off really quickly. I think that's one of the biggest things I could let you know. If the work isn't being produced, if you outsource something and if they're not kind of helping you, then you need to cut it off as soon as possible instead of dragging it on. Um, and eventually you will find people that are actually aiding you. So I've have um, I've gone through a good amount of VAs because I like to test them. And when I feel like it's not really growing or it's getting stagnant and if we can't make improvements, then it's time to move on. 
Um, but there are helpful things you can outsource, but only when you know how to do them yourselves. And it's one of the hugest mistakes people make is doing this before they master it themselves is hiring people to do it for you because you can't manage them. They don't really know what you're looking for. They're going off of another training and they don't have the entrepreneurial mindset. They have the I kind of a task mentality of getting this done, but they might not understand your goal with the company or your product. So you have to make sure that you, the people you are hiring actually take stress away from me when you're not spending extra time micromanaging or going in and putting out fires from what they have done. Yeah. So when a new seller is taking your course and they're, they're just starting to get going, and, or let's say that they're actually been selling for a little while and they're feeling like they're a little overwhelmed, is there usually a certain task or job that you recommend that they look at outsourcing like to a VA first? And what is that? So when they're first starting out, I, in my Intermilly program, I do have a section at the very, it's a bonus and it's how to expand. And that's where I talk about outsourcing in VAs. But honestly, because I've, I've done this myself, I know that you don't need help to launch your product, your first product, second product, you're going to be fine. The reason it feels overwhelming is just because it is, there's a lot of moving parts. It can feel frustrating, but I've also tried to hire someone to help me and um, kind of a, a while back. And I noticed it was, it added more stress, honestly, because now you're worried about someone else that takes away from your bottom line as well. You have to pay them and you pay them more if they're obviously have more experience. So it's like, do you want to be taking out that profit from your business? And are you an expert at this? Or maybe you haven't like mastered it. So you're trying to find an easier solution than mastering it yourself. So I really don't suggest outsourcing until you are very stable with your revenue, until you have control fully from all of them. And you know that you can take a random person and teach them the skills that you have. Um, I think that's the only way to then outsource. Obviously, if they have experience, that's amazing. That's going to be much, much easier for you to kind of, um, you know, reroute in the direction you want for your business. But until you have successful revenue that is not just paying for the business, but actually, you know, is income to you, then you can start considering to outsource. Um, and one of the first things, I guess, the easiest is customer service. Mm. Um, that's probably the easiest, easiest. So you can do product research outsourcing. And the reason I say this, I want to make a really big distinction is because I do make a few videos on my YouTube channel and advise students against this in the beginning is product research outsourcing because the mindset they're doing it with is to make it easier for them and to not do the work, not to learn it. But if you don't know your product, you're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go cra crashing down, right? Not for everybody, but for most people. So don't outsource in the beginning, but when you launch a few successful products and you know the back end of it, you know exactly what to look for and you can actually validate products, then you can train people to do that for you. And you're confident that when they bring you back a list of products, you're not just going to say, sounds good, let's launch them. You're going to look at it from a perspective of I've done this. I know what works. Let me take a look at these and see if I see any flaws. And if there are, can we overcome them? Keep looking. Should I retrain them? Things like that. But don't do it in the very, very beginning. Do it when you're already an expert at those then that's how you obviously scale faster and find more easier things. Yeah. What, uh, not to get totally off topic, but what kind of drives you in the morning to kind of get up, maybe, you know, go look for a new product on Amazon, check what's going on, make a YouTube channel. What, what kind of drives you to do that? I think just life, honestly, I, I can't look at it the other way of not being driven to do things. I can't imagine just 
waking up and not wanting to do things that progress me personally and also in business because we do have a very short life. And I think, you know, as time goes on and as things get taken away, even with this, everything that's going on, you notice how fragile everything is, how limited everything is, and that you can't have the best life you want. Of course, they, there are times where there's less motivation, right? We can't just rely on motivation every day because it's not always there. We have to rely on the habits we built and kind of our, those are the things we really train ourselves to do. Um, sometimes we have to pull ourselves to do it, but if you have trained yourself to pull yourself, you'll notice when you pull yourself out of bed, when you have the right, even change it slightly to the right mindset, it will start snowballing. So for me, I, the way I like to start my days is more of a mindset way, which is by meditating. I do it every single day. I write down, I journal slash write down my goals and I read. So I love doing those th three things in the morning, um, even before I get out of bed. Sometimes it's not always perfect. Sometimes it's throughout the day if I have a really busy day, but those are kind of my staple things. And I know that I'm prepping myself up by feeding myself positive information. Um, and I think going back to that, if you are having struggling time to really, you know, because people are having a lot of difficulties financially and maybe emotionally during everything that's going on or just in everyday life, if you replace those things by feeding your mind with any positivity, it doesn't have to be your own. It can be an audiobook, It could be a YouTube video. It could be you even journaling your issues away you know, on a piece of paper, then you notice those thoughts get replaced with something better. And it really sets you up to mentally fight through any obstacles you have in the day. So I think that's the, that's what kind of drives me is knowing that I'm improving every single day as I continue to build these habits. And even if sometimes it takes a pull, I know ultimately from all of the times I've done it, it will lead me towards the right direction every single time. So when you have that kind of, failure preventative method right there, it's actually it becomes easier to get yourself into that mindset, even when you don't want to. I, I agree with you completely. I have my routine in the morning. I get up, I work out, I get up the same time every morning. I That's do great. almost the same workout. I try to switch it up a little bit. And then, you know, I have, I have my routine I go through, you know, and I come down I start doing some pre-prep work for my job and, you know, jump right into it. And it's usually pretty early in the morning, but that's just my routine. And I, I almost feel like there's occasionally days like we got a holiday coming up right now and, and, you know, I'll probably sleep in on that Monday and it's like, it'll, but I'll wake up and I'll kind of just feel off. Like, you know, I, I should have got up and maybe did my routine. It's a Monday and I'm supposed to do that, but you know, we all need those days off too, but I, I completely yeah, we, understand. We shouldn't feel guilty for, um, you know, sleeping in or things. Cause again, we, we can't be so hard on ourselves. Things are always going to the right direction if you think they are. So even if you miss your routine, if you do it midday instead of the morning, that's fine. But just note that when you do do it, like don't cancel the whole day because something bad happened, right? It's like, if, yeah. So I, even if I miss it, I, I know if I'll do it later, it's still in the right path. So, um, yeah. 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 I've always kind of felt like if I miss it for a day, just get, just get back on, on your routine the next day. So, yeah. Exactly. All right. So, that's great information. I thank you so much for sharing all that. Let's dive into you. Uh, I, you have a very interesting sort of background that brought you into Amazon, but uh, let's go a little further back. Start off with, uh, you know, college and kind of what were you studying and kind of just go through the whole path that led you into this Amazon career that you're in. Yeah. So my path started very differently, but it was very traditional. Um, 
kind of American life. <laughs> I'm an immigrant from Russia, so I moved here and um, that mentality, you know, you want to do better because your family overcame so many things, you're in a different country, you barely speak the language. So I've always been kind of uh, taught to do really well in school. Um, I don't know, if I, parenting has a lot to do with it, but I also really wanted to excel academically. So I always took like AP honors, IB, I did both of them in high school and college. I took, I was a biology major um, on the route to medicine, right? I wanted to be a physician and I volunteered. I mean, I was in the medical industry for about seven years, ever since I was old enough that they allowed me and anything mm -hmm. I just, I just took it because I have such tremendous respect for physicians and the amount of lives they actually change. And I wanted my life to have a significant impact and maybe travel and do Doctors Without Borders because travels has been such a huge kind of thing I've always wanted to do. So I was kind of brainstorming what career would give me the most. And in high school, I heard that doctors do Doctors Without Borders where they can go help the less privileged. And I thought that sounds great because you're always educating yourself. You're growing your mind. I mean, medicine is not easy. I didn't even go to med school and I, I've been around med students and physicians and it's, it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever seen in my life. So tremendous respect to them, um, right? There's, they have so many sacrifices, which again is just, I applaud them so much for putting so much on the line to help other people, um, putting their own families and not spending enough family time with them just to help other people, right? Because um, I worked actually at a, kind of a, with the surgery department at a trauma one center. So I, I rotated through a lot of different sectors and they're very, very hardworking. So, and I was looking at that, I'm like, wow, this is a lot of work. Um, and their income just didn't, doesn't match what it should. So I have always wanted to have a much, much higher income than that. And I didn't see that possible at that time. And I've always wanted to travel and have a really strong family life too. And I don't, I didn't know if I was, I wanted to make that much of a sacrifice at that time. So I started to look for alternatives, right? That would be beneficial for my family, for my time and for other people. And it was, I found Amazon um, and I've never really considered entrepreneurship or anything like that since then. And then it just kind of like a light bulb went off because it was just very obvious that this was the right thing to do. I think when you get those intuitions and impulses, you should follow them because they're not random. It's your habits, it's your mindset that's guiding you towards those impulses. And like that night, I'm like, I have to do this. This is it. And I did it. And it, now I'm here, you know, two plus years later, um, I started teaching people how to do this. My kind of full course came out over a year ago, which is awesome. You know, I love when students send me the results and it just makes me so happy because like recently, uh, like a, a mother with, I think she has like a few children and her husband's like off working all the time, uh, like long distance. And it's just, she's like, look at my results. I'm so excited. And that just makes me feel so incredibly happy to know that other people are making changes in their life. Um, so that's kind of how it started for me. And it's really a passion of, of mine to really pass this on to other people too. Yeah. And then I think uh, you'd mentioned, uh, or, or I had read somewhere that you also did some modeling, right? Oh, yes. I for totally forgot to mention that. It feels like when a was that? It, w it wasn't that long ago, actually. It was um, right before I started Amazon, too, or actually during it as well. Um, so I was signed to a modeling agency in Los Angeles. I've actually been doing it for quite some time, um, way, way early on, even in high school. And that was also kind of a career option for me. So I like, you know, Los Angeles is the big city where dreams come true. And it's like, why not take that opportunity while you're there and see if you can actually 
do something. So I got signed by an agency and it was so much fun, uh, you know, going to castings, doing campaigns. It was all a lot of fun, but again, it's not very long-term industry changes really, really fast. And again, it's not something you can do for your entire life. And I just, it's not very business oriented. I mean, of course, some people do take it to that approach. But again, I think when your intuition is guiding you, you kind of follow it. You know, I think all of those career paths would have made me very happy just because I look for the happiness in situations, but I can't be more grateful for the path that like my guidance and, you know, my instincts kind of led me to here. All right, you got you to gotta give us a story about something with modeling that was maybe funny or happened when you were doing the modeling. Okay, this one's actually funny. So uh, I was driving to a casting and I, the traffic was horrendous because I was about an hour from the casting um, and I'm driving in my car and I'm looking at the time. I'm like, there's literally no way I'm gonna make this. Like the casting is already halfway done. I'm still half, more than halfway away there's just no, no way this is going to happen. I'm like, well, am I going to turn around? No. Like, again, it's this intuition and guidance that's kind of pulling you there. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to drive. And then I get to the casting. It's completely empty. Everyone's empty, except for the people who already picked the models for the campaign. And I walk in there. I'm like, hello. So is the casting over? They're like, yeah, we already picked. This is a meeting for tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, at least I tried. You know, I'm like, thank you, goodbye. And I walk away. And then one of the casting people run after me, like, wait, wait, come back here for a second, come back. Yeah, yeah, uh, so what's your schedule like for the next three days? I'm like, oh, I have nothing, I'm free. Like, okay, tomorrow the call time is at like 7 a.m. So I basically got the job by showing up when everything was completely over, even though I probably should have turned around and went home. Um, I have a lot of more funny stories, but I think that one was <laughs> very cool because... <laughs> you know, persistence, right? Yeah. Persistence. And also, obviously you shouldn't be late, but sometimes I think life has funny ways of kind of not working out the way you think it will, not in bad ways, but even in good ways. All right. So anybody who's listening to the podcast, this is my personal opinion. And I hope you take this as a compliment. You look a lot like Denise Richards. That's my personal opinion. Have you ever been told that? I, I, I have actually. Okay. Yeah. Good. I'm not the first one. <laughs> Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you, you've done some absolutely amazing things. Let, let's go over so everybody knows how to get a hold of you. Like, let's make sure they, they hear about, uh, let's see, your Instagram, you got YouTube. Oh, wait, before we do that, wait, I want to ask, I want to ask Karina. So Karina has this really inspirational uh, second YouTube channel. And I want mm-hmm. you to tell everybody a little bit about it because one of the things I've been trying to do is make sure that we get more women on our podcast one of my personal goals is try to get more women on our podcast. And next year I'm trying now, of course, it's kind of hard because e-commerce in general, it's, it's kind of a male driven uh, thing. And let's, I mean, we're trying to change that. Everybody's trying to change that, but uh, you know, tell them a little bit about this great channel that you started uh, not too long ago. You said. So this channel is called, so all, all my handles um, on YouTube everywhere is into a million, um, like into a million, right? It's not just, from a monetary perspective, but it's to being, you know, the saying of like, feel like a million bucks and it has like positive attributes. Like you feel like you're the best version of you. And I apply that to everywhere in life. So that's how my whole Instagram and YouTube for Amazon started. But I've always wanted to really um, 
impact women more. That's been kind of one of my things. Um, so I started a secondary channel called Intimately Ladies, so it's for the women. And it essentially talks about, I, I kind of summarize it as money, woman, and power. So essentially how as a woman, you can be the best version of yourself, get the most power that you can get out of life when it comes to all aspects. Um, and also focusing on business and knowing that you can be, you can do it all, right? You can be the woman that you want to be and there's businesses completely 100% open to you. Um, and basically tips on money, tips on things like that. Um, but that's kind of the overall approach and it's a very, very fun thing that I, in very, very consistent on that channel as well. So uh, there's two things, right? There's the full into a milli program, which many know me for. Um, it goes through Amazon A to Z, but the PL club is very special. Um, I started it this year because again, the whole low risk approach, I wanted to make the information available for a very affordable rate. So people can actually join it for $7 and they will be able, even if you don't continue to the full uh, monthly uh, membership, you will be able to keep all of that um, information for $7. And like, honestly, for that, just trial enrollment, you will know how to find these low risk markets that I'm talking about. So I want it to be very affordable for anybody that wants to start Amazon without having them investing a lot of money right off the bat. So that was kind of the whole vision for the private label club. There you go. For $7, go to theplclub.com and get signed up. Karina, thank you again. Thanks for joining us this week on the Ecom Wiz Podcast. Special thanks to our sponsor, FeedbackWiz.com. Be sure to use coupon code POD50 for 50% off your first paid month with FeedbackWiz. Again, the code is POD50. Please subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Join us next week for more great tips to help Amazon sellers dominate the marketplace.